and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feed on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Thank you, Linda. I also want to greet those of you who are joining us from home through our live stream and also a reminder as we sent out just a couple of days ago uh, that September 4th will be the last day that we will be offering the live stream resource. It served us well over the last uh, 13 plus months, um, but we will be uh, moving on uh, from that season. And so the 4th will be the last. And we would love to invite people, uh, all of you, to gather together in person, a, a rich, unique blessing to be here physically and in person which we believe as a shepherding team is so vital to our spiritual well-being as individuals and as a church. So come on back. We love you, and we hope to see you September 11th, if not sooner. Well, let's say a word of prayer before we look at this passage uh, so helpfully read by Sister Linda. Uh, let's bow our heads and pray. Jesus, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would come now and bless this time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fill these words and penetrate our hearts and our lives. We pray for the transforming grace of God to move through your body at this time. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to know his love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series this summer on the questions of Jesus. And today's question comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, where Jesus is in conversation with a crowd of disciples, followers of his, and this is not long after this miracle, this wondrous thing that he did in, in feeding over 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and fish, one of his great 
miracles. And the question that we're examining today in this passage is this. Does this offend you? Does this offend you? We're going to look at this passage in two parts. First, the bread of life. And secondly, the offense of Jesus. The bread of life, the offense of Jesus. Let's just dive right in. First, the bread of life. There's one word that's repeated again and again, seven times, in fact, across this passage. It's life. Life, live, living, again and again and again, this dominant theme that emerges to the sensitive reader. That's the main theme of this passage. Jesus is discussing true life, how you fully, fully, truly live. And he discusses this using the metaphor or the word picture of food and drink. In verse 57, he says, the one who feeds on me will live because of me. In verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread, referring to himself, will live forever. These words, of course, echo what Jesus said earlier in the chapter when he declared in verse 35 those well-known words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Let's think about what he's teaching us today. Jesus is telling us something about life. That life itself is more than material. It's more than just about keeping alive physically. We know this. We have an instinctive sense in our hearts that life is more than just getting through the day, more than just surviving biologically for another day. The Bible would say life is more than material. In fact, it's spiritual. Life is not less than our physical existence. It's not less than that. In fact, Jesus in verse 54 says, I will raise them up on the last day. God is going to rescue, redeem, restore, even resurrect our physical bodies as well. Life is physical, but there's more to life than just the physical. You see that phrase a couple times in this passage, eternal life. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that there will be a time when we will live forever in Christ. That's true. Death will be no more. But living forever in subpar conditions, in a broken body, and in a sin-infected world would be no joy at all. Eternal life means the transformation of all of life in this world as it was meant to be. The extinguishing not only of death but of sin, not only of sin but of selfishness, not only of selfishness but of disease and injustice and everything that makes this world a terror to us all. Jesus says, I offer you eternal life, perfected life, life as it was meant to be and will be lived in me. Jesus is telling us something about life, life that he offers us. He's also telling us something about us, you and me. 
in using this metaphor to talk about life, I am the bread of life. He's telling us we're hungry. Spiritually, existentially, profoundly, deeply, we are hungry people. Every single one of us is searching for, well, bread. Bread that satisfies our hunger. Things that give us life, meaning, and purpose. Something that makes us feel and be truly alive. Every one of us is searching for some kind of bread for which we hunger. Psalm 63 vividly describes this hunger with these words. Maybe you're familiar with them. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My body, my whole being longs for you as in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I will be fully satisfied in you as with the richest of food. Notice how we find in this imagery an unavoidable implication. We need food, we are hungry, and we need food to be given to us, food to be discovered in God himself. What does that mean? We are not self-sufficient beings. We can't feed ourselves. And you know, you might have noticed, this is quite different from the popular spirituality that we find all around us today, which tells us that what you really need can be found inside of you. All that you need for survival and sustenance, food, is lodged within you. Seek within. The Bible says you're wonderful, made in God's image. More resource than you could possibly imagine, but you're flawed. You have a deficiency that makes it necessary for you to turn to God and find life in Him. Food is found not within you, but outside of you. Life True life, the fullness of life and satisfaction in that life is found not within you, but outside of you, namely in God. The old saint and theologian Augustine put it this way, praying to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. We have a hunger, we have a thirst, we have a need, something outside of ourselves, and his name is Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus tells us something about life, he tells us something about us, and finally he tells us something about himself, and namely that he's bread. We've already said this. But he promises to be that very food that gives us life. He is the source of sustenance and satisfaction for human hearts. In verse 55, he calls himself real food and real drink, which indicates to us that there's such thing as a fake food and a fake drink, a, a counterfeit that's out there, which then raises a whole host of questions like this. What are you eating? What are you feeding on? Uh, what is the bread that you are seeking to satisfy you? Perhaps the bread of a certain relationship 
or, or maybe the bread of a certain achievement or the bread of a certain conception of freedom. If I could just shake free of this or them, then I will find life. What is the bread that you are chasing after and will it actually give you life? More fundamentally, are you seeking life? We're told here that every single one of us is looking for bread that gives life and that satisfies. Do you see that in your life? Are you seeking after true life, meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life? Uh, one of my new favorite shows to watch series online is Ted Lasso. Many of you I know also enjoy this show, and one of the main characters in that show, well, secondary characters, is a soccer player named Danny Rojas, and Ted Lasso, of course, is an American coach that's gone overseas to England to coach a team, though he, in the beginning, knew nothing about the game of soccer, football in that nation, of course. Danny Rojas is this flamboyant, energetic player on his team that goes around shouting for all to hear, football is life. Football is life. We're all repeating some mantra like that. It might not be soccer, football. But what is it for you? What is life? My work is life. My accomplishments are life. My children are life. My freedom is life. My personal happiness is life. How would you fill in that blank? Friends, are you hungry for the true life that Christ alone offers us? Some of us are hungry and you don't even know that you're hungry. In fact, I might say that you're spiritually hangry. You know, that word hungry and angry where you're sort of like aching with an appetite and not even knowing why you're chewing out the people around you. Some of you have been hangry spiritually for years. Bitter, upset, unfulfilled directionless, ornery, maybe depressed. And you don't realize it's because of an unfulfilled appetite that Jesus alone can fill. Will you turn your hangriness towards the only one who can satisfy? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You'll never hunger or thirst if you come to me. The bread of life. Secondly, the offense of Jesus. So how do you get this life that we're talking about, eternal life, life as it was meant to be, this life that satisfies, this life that is found in Jesus? How do we get it? How does one feed this hunger and quench this thirst? That's an important question, right? Well, here's Jesus' astonishing answer. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. What? Right? Listen to verse 53. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at that last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, of course, read in context, which means looking at the words and the conversation around this provocative phrasing, 
it becomes clear that when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and you have no life unless you eat me, it becomes clear that Jesus isn't talking about literal or physical eating and drinking. Rather, he's talking about this metaphorically or symbolically. He's talking about receiving and believing in Jesus, receiving him just like we open our mouths and we receive food into our bodies in the same way we need to open the mouths of our souls and receive Jesus like food for our souls. He's talking about belief, trust in Jesus, a kind of feeding of faith. This is the key to that life which, of course, we need to raise the question, have you fed on Jesus? Have you opened wide your mouth to embrace him and receive him? Do you know that's the key to finding true life, life eternal? This is his promise. If you trust in him, that you will have life. Beloved, have you trusted in him? And then you say, well, goodness, that helps. Why didn't he just say that? Why this almost graphic language? Eating flesh, drinking blood. And I, I, I think it's to convey to us in nearly provocative terms to get our attention that faith is more than religious ritual where you can kind of just put on autopilot. And that faith is more than quote-unquote spiritual this thing that is just sort of magical, that just kind of happens. I think he's conveying to us just the richness of how the Bible actually understands faith. I mean, again, we're talking about a spiritual eating, that we're taking Jesus all the way in, into ourselves. This is the way, again, Augustine understood this. He says, believe and you have eaten. Right? There's an active trust that we place in Jesus. There's a whole life open to him kind of way of taking him in. There's a deep life or death dependency that we find in him as our food. And all of that gets brought to life through this metaphor of eating and drinking, doesn't it? You're not just believing in Jesus as a proposition or as an abstract idea, or even as a mere doctrine, you're taking him in. And you're saying to him, my whole life depends upon you. Life or death, my life depends upon you, even as my physical life depends upon food and drink. Jesus is talking about trusting in him all the way in, but on the face of it, what he actually says it's weird, right? Jesus isn't even trying not to be weird in the way that he phrases this. And so in verse 60, we're told on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And in verse 66, we're told from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They left. Crowds of people that were following him and listening to his teaching and going where he goes. That's what disciple means, a follower, an apprentice. 
A lot of them bailed out. Why? Why was this language so offensive? First of all, we touched on this because it just sounds so gross. Taken literally, it almost sounds like Jesus is promoting cannibalism. But secondly, more than gross, it was especially offensive to Jewish ears because of the Jewish law. The Old Testament law strictly prohibited the drinking of blood and the eating of meat with blood still in it. And as verse 59 points out, Jesus was saying these things in a Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. So the crowd was offended by his words. It was a hard teaching. Many walked away that day. Which invites us to reflect, will you and I also walk away from Jesus when we are offended by him. It's true, there's a lot in the Bible that we might consider offensive today. It might be the notion of God's judgment against sin. It might be the Bible's teaching about sex and sexuality. It might be Jesus' claim to be the only way to God. These days, it might even be the suggestion, or the command, rather, to forgive and forgive and forgive without ceasing. Maybe these areas of offense are exactly why you've resisted the Christian faith or why, after walking with Jesus for a long, long time for you, why you maybe have had second thoughts more recently. This may be so. And these have always been struggles. Getting offended by things in the Word of God. This is not new. And yet I do think our generation may struggle with the taking of offense of Scripture in a unique way. And what I mean by that is this. In this generation, we are easily offended. We need to grapple with this. There's a, a kind of sensitivity, I think, that we have collectively cultivated that makes us an easily offended generation. We feel threatened even by the feeling of discomfort. Uncomfortable or threatening debate, conversations, ideas. I was thinking about this recently while reading an article in The Atlantic that's called, uh, That's It, You're Dead to Me. And in it, the author explains that while it, it's true that there, are, there is such thing as truly toxic people, and there is a time to remove ourselves from truly toxic relationships, but suddenly in today's way of thinking, the author notes, everyone is toxic. And everything is toxic. And social media will popularly advise us to remove from our lives just about anyone who causes you discomfort. But see, the Christian Bible says something different. Christ invites us into something different, a different way of thinking, a different way of living. Love requires resilience, doesn't it? But we are losing the tenacity we need to endure conflict 
and to stay in ordinary, hard relationships, let alone learning how to love our enemies, as Christ has called us to. And listen, if this is how we've begun to relate to one another, easily offended, quick to bail out, should it be any surprise to us that our way of relating to God would be no different? Easily offended, quick to cancel. And I'm not saying that some of us don't have legitimate, hard, wrought, and fought struggles that we're processing and, and working through. But I am saying that the Bible invites us, Jesus invites us to wrestle with offense in Jesus in a perhaps different way than we might be used to. Jesus asks, does this offend you? And then I might suggest to you a few things here. What should we do if we're offended by something Jesus says or something that we encounter in the Bible? A couple quick thoughts here. Number one, don't be surprised that you're offended. And what I mean by that is that when we go into the Bible, which the Christian faith claims and believes based on Jesus' own claim that the Bible is actually God speaking, the very word of God that reveals the otherwise unfathomable mind and heart of God. It's a wonderful glory, but a bold claim that if that in fact is God's words, then shouldn't we expect that some things that we encounter in the Bible will in fact offend us? That not everything that God says, believes, and commands us to do will be all that we already naturally believe and want to do. If God is God and we are not, should we not expect for there to be, well, conflict once in a while? And wouldn't it be silly for us to dare to believe that there might be a God who actually already agrees with everything that I believe? All my morals, all my politics, Wow, what a surprise, what a great God. Now, that might save you from discomfort, but guess what, friends? It might also save you from being saved. Because a God that's just like you has got no power to rescue you from death, no power to rescue you from your sin, no power to rescue you from the injustice and the cruelty of this world. You want a God that that's big, that that's, that unfathomable, that that mind-blowing whose ways are higher than your ways and thoughts are beyond your thoughts. If you're looking for a God who will never upset you and who will never contradict you, that God is not only going to be a God who's unable to save you, he's a God who will never be worthy of your worship. So don't be surprised, first of all. Let's manage our expectations. Don't be surprised when you're offended. Number two, then study that hard teaching. Dive into the Bible. I, I, as I have walked with people for years, not only in the church, but neighbors and other friends and acquaintances, I'm surprised how much we run with interpretations of the Bible based upon hearsay. 
In other words, how much you have heard that the Bible says X, Y, Z, but you've never actually read the text for yourself. You've never actually studied how to interpret or read what the Bible actually says on its own terms. We need to first make sure that you actually understand that passage or that hard doctrine, what it's actually saying and not just what it seems to be saying. Oftentimes, it may not say, does not say what you thought it originally said. There needs to be some clarity about matters of sexuality, about matters of gender, about matters of slavery, about these different technical and often controversial issues that require study. It takes work to do this in time and commitment, but it may not be teaching what you think it is, and we often need to strip away common mistaken notions or interpretations in order to get the heart of what it is. I'm not saying that at the end of that study it's not still going to be offensive, but at least you know better what you're actually dealing with and what it is, or rather who it is, that might be offending you. Don't be surprised. Study the hard teaching. Thirdly, consider if everyone and everywhere is equally offended as you are. And what I mean by that is it's really important for us to read these hard passages and these hard teachings in community. And I would add, especially in community that reflects some of the diversity of the global cultural body of Christ. In other words, people that aren't just like you. So that you can kind of sometimes feel challenged by people that say, oh, I can see why you're a little bit upset, but that's actually okay with me. Again, that doesn't immediately change your view just because another person actually agrees with it, but it at least challenges our notion that the way I see it is the only way to see it. The way I'm offended is the only way to be offended. Not only doing this in a local community, like a church, small group, sign up for a life group, this is where we do study and where we grow in these ways, but also considering, considering how that hard teaching was wrestled with across the entire world of Christians and across history through generations of readers of the Bible. And oftentimes what we find is what actually is being offended within me is not just an objective read on what is true, moral, and right, and good, but what's being offended in me is my American, Western, modern, liberal sensitivities, sensibilities. And you don't realize that until you can actually see people outside of yourself in your context responding to that same hard teaching differently, and in some cases without any offense at all. Don't be surprised. Study the teaching and study especially in diverse community, considering if everyone and everywhere is equally offended as you are. And then lastly, look for something even in that hard teaching, look for something about God that's revealed in your hearts. His grace, His truth. Let me bring us to a close with this. This is exactly what Jesus does in verse 61. He says, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where He was before? He's saying, okay, yeah, you, you're a little bugged out by this sort of gross-ish kind of idea of eating flesh and drinking blood, which, of course, is referring to believing in Jesus, taking him in, nothing like that. But, but if this offends you, then what if you see 
the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, how much more is that going to offend you? There's something even more offensive than a Jewish person being invited to eat human flesh and blood. Well, Jesus explains this. How so? What is he saying? Ascending to where he was before. Jesus is making an outrageous claim about himself. He's talking about going back to heaven from where he came. He's claiming to be God. That's why he could say, life is found in me. That's why he could say, I will give you eternal life. I'm eternal life. And if you're united with me, I will give you all that is found in eternal life. Life perfected, given in me. Like manna, I too came down from heaven. You, you, you think perceived flesh eating faith sounds offensive? Here's something even more offensive. I'm God. And you have no life apart from me. But here's what you need to do, Jesus implies. You need to keep pushing through the offense and you find good news. Here's good news. I'm God. And I give you life which you have none of apart from me. There's another thing here. In the Gospel of John, the language of seeing Jesus ascend or lifted up is a clear reference to Jesus' death on the cross, being hoisted up upon the cross. And of course, this is also seen the way in which Jesus talks about the necessity of eating his flesh, which is broken, and drinking his blood, which was shed on the cross. Jesus, who died for our sins, suffered the penalty and punishment of God's judgment on our behalf, in our place. Blood obviously references a violent death, a sacrifice in our stead. Jesus is saying, you, you, you're offended. You, you think perceived flesh-eating faith sounds offensive. Well, well, here's something even more offensive. I, I needed to die for you because you could not save yourself. I, I need to die on an ugly cross to beautify you because you could not and cannot save yourself. You cannot feed yourself. But here's good news. I did it all for you with joy and out of love for you. The cross in 1 Corinthians 1 is described as the ultimate scandal, the ultimate offense. One that tells us the bad news that we are helpless sinners before God and the good news that Christ died for our sins and gives us eternal life that was purchased on the cross and resurrection for you and me. The bad news is you are dead in your sins. The good news is you are offered eternal life. The bad news is, is that you can't save yourself. The good news is the Savior is here. The bad news is, is that you can't feed yourself or find food within yourself. The good news is bread has come from heaven and he's given himself to you by being broken and poured out for you and me. The bad news is we're hungry. Some of us are even starving. The good news is Jesus will satisfy you with the richest of food, and its name is Jesus. 
Jesus says, I have loved you in your helplessness. I will feed you. I will quench your thirst. I will satisfy your deepest hunger. I will give you life. Will you take it? Will you take him? But you see, the road to that life and salvation is the road of offense, of hearing the bad news and not running the other way, of letting your soul squirm a little bit, even die a bit in order to find And when you do that, Jesus turns to you and he asks a question as he asks the 12. You do not want to leave too, do you? And you find yourself responding as Simon Peter did. Lord, to whom shall we go? What's our other alternative? Where else shall we turn? You have the words of eternal life. You are the one that gives life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Here is a confession of one who has found the bread of life, who has pushed through the offense of Jesus, and who has embraced him as the one who truly is the Savior of sinners, the author of life, and the resurrection from the dead. This is the Jesus that's offered to you and me. Are you hungry? Are you hungry maybe for the first time? Do you find a restlessness of soul where you're looking for a meal and maybe even a feast? Jesus abundantly offers himself to you. The only question is, will you take and eat and drink? Let's pray. Christ, we ask that you would come, that you would stir our souls to see these things as you see them. And especially for any person that maybe is resisting you because of their experience of offense, they feel offended by you, Jesus, we pray that you would give them grace to see you, more of you in that, and that they would find life, whether for the first time or maybe all over again. So we bring ourselves to you asking for your spirit. Thank you in advance for giving him to us in abundance, an abundance of life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to move down to the bottom to open up the time of Q&A, but I'll just give you one second to catch your breath and maybe think of a few questions you might have.